By now you've seen the alert, and once the download is complete, you know it's true. That it's time for yet another episode of The Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, coming to you from the DC Comics News Podcast Center, somewhere out there in the midst of podcast world, with episode number three, or issue number three, if you happen to think in comic book terms, giving you the top five books that I picked this week from that metaphysical spinning rack the one we used to run to as kids and pull books from, hoping to find another story of imagination, wonder, and maybe just a bit of escape. I'm going to kick things off today with Green Lantern number six. Now, it's billed as Hal Jordan versus Adam Strange to the death. And at the end of last issue, Hal was infiltrating the Black Stars. And after a series of loyalty challenges, he arrived on Ran and was brought to a chained-up Adam Strange that he pretends to not know. Hal has been told that he must kill Adam to complete his initiation, but the Noble Lantern of Sector 2814 wants a fair fight. There's some beautiful moments that open this book, a really vintage-looking shot on page 4. If you think the image reminds you of something from an older comic, please let me know because I was getting that sensation even though I couldn't call to mind where or why or how I might have seen it before. This shot features Controller Mu, Rand's science minister Sardath, and Adam's wife Alana. A beautiful crescent moon window reveals three suns glowing in the distance, spilling orange light in through the window. Moo is arguing that he offers a painless and benevolent assumption of control over Ran by threatening first Sun Eaters and then other potential monsters as he, Alana, and Sardath walk to his ship. Now Alana is not deterred and answers that she cannot be intimidated, which is when the ship arrives at the duel taking place between Strange and Jordan. Adam is desperately trying to get a response from Hal, who only acknowledges him by saying, Shh. At the count of ten, Rand's defender is still trying to reason with Hal when both men fire their weapons, and while Hal takes a grazing shot on the right side of his neck, Adam Strange is struck in the torso, and he collapses over the span of about four panels right there at the top of page eight, just as the ship carrying Alana arrives. Alana is angry, and for all of his stoic appearance, there's a panel on page nine where Hal appears to give a nod or a wink. Or maybe it's supposed to be confusing and taken as a look of grimace, disgust, disappointment, or shame. Now, the larger-scale story is about Hal infiltrating the Black Stars and trying to disrupt their plan to collect five components necessary to assemble the ultimate asset. And it picks up here, where the ring is revealed to be component number four. 
and the ring is revealed to be component number four. But the Black Stars can't make it work. Something about a booby trap. And that's when things start to compound. First, Hal is given his ring back and told to make it work. But the next page and the panels on it shows that Adam is not injured. And he even states that he was placed in a coma by Hal to fake his death. Hal starts listing the ways he has served the Black Stars and that they now have him, his ring, and his actions, the fact that he's killed someone he was sworn to protect, one of the closest planets in his sector. To which Moo says that they do have Hal, and that he knows the Guardian sent Hal to neutralize them. Hal must either swear allegiance, or if he refuses, Umu will detonate a U-bomb that Adam and Alana's daughter, Aaliyah, is playing with. The explosion will kill everyone, and it will also neutralize the Black Stars. And at this moment, Jordan gets a message from the Guardians he must disarm the bomb, even if it costs him his life. And they are redirecting the power of the central battery to a system. Hal says he has a better idea. And on the next page, Strange is giving a memorial to the passing of Hal Jordan, the nobility of his sacrifice. And then he has a quiet moment with his wife and daughter before he suddenly disappears. Because once again, as always occurs with Adam Strange, the Zeta Beam eventually wears off and he must return to Earth. His last words, that he believes he hears the sound of Emperor Penguins. Meanwhile, somewhere in space, a Green Lantern ring is floating, and Hal is walking across a green, misty world, and he admits that he does not know where he is or what direction he should seek. And the little old man that he's been talking to tells him to find the place called Emerald Sands. And when he gets there, to tell the people that Mirwadin sent him. Now that final image is one you have to see. The details behind the face and the colors and the misshaping of the hands and limbs that are attached to this body, all shrouded under this floppy overhanging hat. It's something you have to kind of behold in order to understand and that I could continue describing and yet still not be able to give justice to. Really beautiful moment here. And I also really enjoyed the play of possibility by naming the character Mirwadin, which reminds me of the old Celtic name Myrden, which is another form of saying Merlin the sorcerer and mystic, or however history may remember him, the guide who was a crucial player in the role of King Arthur and the mythology that comes with him. I also really enjoyed the way that my expectation that Hal would find a way out was only slowly revealed through his own language about the sort of risks he's taken on for the Black Stars, and also the lines he's been willing to cross that sort of identify him with the world that he's come to police and protect, and how much that has cost him, and yet he still feels that he's not trusted by them. Which is why when he finally is given the go-ahead from the Guardians, 
that his job is to stop what's about to happen and that they've given him the power to do so, I really enjoy the idea that he recognizes the moment and then in one of the fading speech bubbles says, but he has a better idea. Clearly, that idea saves the people of Ran. Somehow, it also neutralizes Mu and the Black Stars. And yet the result of it is that Hal is now lost in a strange land. And based on the images of the ring floating in space before we see him in this green, misty place, leads me to consider that he's somewhere within the energies of the ring. Somehow he's found a way there to stay safe. But that the process was such a challenge to his human mind that he had to change himself in order to exist or that the ring had to change him in order for him to exist there. And now it's the story about him finding his way back. This one was a solid four out of five for me, but I'll be curious to hear from you on what your score was and whether or not you agree or disagree with any of the thoughts I had about Green Lantern number six. Next up is Young Justice number four. And the story starts in a prison with an outside shot and plenty of speech bubbles trying to ask and understand exactly what's going on and also where in the story the reader and the characters currently are. We open with Amethyst, princess of one of the twelve houses of Jem, who is a prisoner. She explains that the Dark Lord Opal has them all under his spell and is holding them powerless as his prisoners. She then flashes back to the day before, when someone tried to have the turquoise princess kidnapped on her wedding announcement day and Amethyst is there to stop it, which then leads to the recollection of another flashback among a council of princesses, where Amethyst accuses Lord Opal of creating chaos that threatens the gem world and that he needs to be dealt with permanently. No one will support her, stating simply that they do not operate that way, despite the points that she makes that they are all miserable and that the place where they live was once magical. It sounds so much like the current political climate, it's hard not to see the parallels that are being suggested. When Amethyst is thanked and then ignored, she mentions that the planet Krypton comes to mind as she is closing the doors behind here. And then she overhears plans to have her removed from the council and sent back to Earth until Turquoise defends her and all hopes of unanimous vote are dashed. Then the announcement is made that the courts will not intervene if Amethyst gets in trouble again and certainly if she is doing something that the council does not agree with. Back in the present, and with much less gloom and doom, Impulse is bouncing around and annoying one of Lord Opal's goons somewhere else on Gemworld. The goon, who Impulse refers to as Skeletor, and who I personally think looks more like the character Irock from the movie Ready Player One, with this big sort of like skull torso, is trying to keep up with Impulse, who's freaking out about Connor's beard and the woman carrying a baby with a very distinguishable spit girl. And then Connor knocks out the goon with one punch on a giant splash page, right there on page 10. Connor learns from Bart how the team ended up in Gemworld, and he's very curious about exactly who 
on the team came with impulse. Back at the prison, Ginny, the girl with the shotgun, reveals that she is the great-great-granddaughter of Jonah Hex, and that there's a trunk that she was carrying with her, and she's not really sure what's inside, and she's pretty sure that everything inside is not exactly in working order. And she's just worried that if anyone, even the creatures who have captured them, starts poking around, it could get a lot of people hurt. And she just doesn't want that on her conscience. Sounds like a pretty nice person, especially given that she's the great-great-granddaughter of Jonah Hex. This story is interrupted when Connor arrives to break them out, and a brief reunion ensues before Amethyst reveals that she learned that Ruby, Topaz, and Turquoise have signed a secret deal with Lord Opal to force her out, and that it's Turquoise who, by suggesting that maybe Amethyst should just go home to Earth and let everything get settled out, that she understands that the person she thought was her closest alloy, Turquoise, has actually turned against her and is now a dangerous enemy. Amethyst also knows that Connor understands that a series of reality quakes keep realigning Gemworld in jarring constructs that are a sign of something far more dangerous, and that until this is something they can solve, Gemworld may never be safe. I gave this one a 3.5 out of 5. I like the story of Amethyst. I was always kind of confused about the concept of the character and the storyline whenever I came across old issues bit chewed up or lying around in the 50 cent box. But whenever I glanced through the pages, I really found myself unable to get past the heavy crystalline imagery that seemed like it was meant to tell me something, but somehow always felt a little too new age for my young brain. Learning more about this world and the dangers it faces through characters like Robin, Wonder Girl, Impulse, and the rest of Young Justice only adds to the fun and allows me to see it from a new vantage point. And hopefully, with a little bit more maturity, I can't actually back that up, but I'd like to consider that it's a possibility. I also like that the politics feel only too similar to the current headlines that are so present and so reflected in this storyline, and that the seeds of betrayal are ripe not only with potential, but the possibility that ending something on a permanent level is a nice, simple first option to consider. But when it's refused by the council, it is going to force Amethyst to figure out another way to solve this problem. One that may require either planning or the help from her new friends. I'm looking forward to seeing where this story continues and just how much more I can learn about Amethyst, Gemworld, and so many other elements in this story through the eyes of Young Justice, who so far make it fun, exciting, and something that I now wish maybe I'd had a chance to read, or at least taken advantage of the opportunity to read, when I was younger. Then again, 
maybe it would have turned me off even more, and I wouldn't be nearly as prepared to enjoy this book the way I did this time around. And because we sometimes have to pay the bills, we're going to take a short break for a message that you might want to hear. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. And we're back. Justice League 21 provides the opportunity where Superman finally gets a chance to fight the white-haired trickster Superman from the Sixth Dimension who conned the Justice League into coming to the Sixth Dimension and then trapping the Man of Steel in a dark place that he can't escape. And the white guy is just kicking Superman's butt. And all the while, he's telling Superman that one, he is in a pocket universe specifically designed to keep him prisoner. Two, he is the reason that every version of the multiverse is doomed. And three, that he has enough food in a nearby cosmic garden to sustain him, but there is not enough light to keep him powered. If he continues to try to fly away, he will die in space and fall back to the ground like all the others before him. I had some great questions at this moment, like, where are the others? How many other Supermans came before? If they all died, where are the bodies? And will we get to see a makeshift kind of graveyard with Superman as the caretaker? Which takes me back to the days when Hal Jordan kind of snapped and created uh, a graveyard for Coast City which he managed as its caretaker and actually became part of a few storylines, not only in the present, but in the future. Maybe that's not going to happen. But before I even get a chance to find out if any of those questions will eventually be answered, I'm drawn back when the team in the sixth dimension is called to an immediate psychic boardroom, interrupting a conversation between Bruce Wayne and Tim Drake. And it's one in which Batman is beginning to consider the possibility that the world that's been created is one he can accept. And in the boardroom, that concept is challenged by the news that John and Kendra are able to reveal by offering up the knowledge that their future child has been almost too afraid to share with them. And now at this great moment when he's offered the chance to do so, the moment is interrupted by the white-haired Superman who reveals that he is actually, (laughs) spoiler, the World Forager, brother to the Monitor and the Anti-Monitor and the first son of Perpetua. Now, if you've been keeping up with Justice League so far, Perpetua is the big thing that they've been trying to stop back in their time. She's broken free from the source wall. 
she's bringing about the change that Lex Luthor and his team are interpreting as doom. And clearly, she is the mother of these three very well-known figures, at least the first two, Monitor and Anti-Monitor, and now this first son, the World Forager. And the World Forager is angry because he's quick to point out just how much work was required to trap Perpetua inside the source wall the first time. Knowing what he knows and what's been required to bring about the reality he's created here in the sixth dimension, he gives the Justice League an ultimatum. Join with him. Imprison those who, based on perceptive, deductive reasoning, those who will side with Doom before they can attack. And he points out that on the timeline they are currently traveling, within a few days, Lex Luthor will announce the plan for Doom, and a war will begin, one which will cost a great deal and will prevent the possibility of the timeline that they are experiencing from becoming reality. In order to prevent this, the heroes of the Justice League will not only need to join him, but they'll have to make the choice to attack others and incapacitate them, imprison or even kill them, before they actually make the choice to join Doom. Most of the team is ready to make a quick decision, but Bruce is not so sure. The team finally does decide to refuse, and that's when it is trapped on a prison planet that smells like apocalypse, but appears much, much bigger. And it is here that they can see that the prisoners are held. When flying armored troops arrive to confront the Justice League, a mask is removed to reveal that this team is led by Lois Lane, and that she claims that she is the one who killed Superman. Wow, I like the twists and turns and the concept of the Forager using subterfuge to bring the team to his dimension, which is fun. But the concept when he is revealed seemed like this weird cross between Martian Manhunter Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z and the lower half of the modern Anti-Monitor with the, I don't know, the sort of long vertical groin protector thing that reminds me of those two older characters, but yet... <laughs> seemed a bit dated and unnecessary for this version of the World Forager, especially as part of his reveal. Also, the ear piercings were something that stylistically, I guess, work in some way, but didn't really appeal to me. But despite my feelings about design or presentation of the World Forager, I gave this one a solid 4 out of 5. And I'm really looking forward to how the next chapter of this story is going to unfold and just how far Scott Snyder can keep taking this incarnation of the Justice League. And with the spinner rack beginning to slow, I go ahead and draw on my fourth book for this week's selection, Deathstroke 42. And this is actually part two of the Terminus Project, which began with part one back in T-Titans number 28. And I actually had the chance to read that and enjoyed the setup and the premise of Damian Wayne and the team capturing Deathstroke and imprisoning him in their makeshift penitentiary, where they have kept quite a few villains now, and with its growing numbers, is beginning to become something that I think is a liability. 
But this version, this story, even though it's part two, opens with a retelling of Slade Wilson's origin by Black Mask. He, at the end of this telling, wants the other prisoners who have been locked up by Damien and the Teen Titans to find a way to help Deathstroke escape and then to join his team, even though it hasn't been suggested that he, A, has one, or B, is creating one. Now, it's true, Mask was part of a team at one point, and he had been chosen by Deathstroke to be part of that, but that doesn't mean that in this story, Deathstroke is looking, or needs, actually, any help. Something he communicates when his son Jericho, who revealed Slade's location to Damien, mentally checks in with his father and learns that even as they're talking, Dad's breaking free. Because this is a bigger play that's going down than just Damien's goal to capture Slade or Black Mask's goal to take advantage of it and secure his and the other prisoners' freedom. Slate breaks his own arm to get free from the cables that are holding him prisoner, using the slack that this creates to then work his way out of the hamstring contortion that he had been held in. And after doing so, he then uses his connection to the Speed Force to plant seeds of doubt in the mind of Kid Flash and then to harass Damien while a plan to take down Blackrock falls apart before Robin's eyes. Once Slade's done showing Damien all the ways that he is right, and better, Robin returns to find that Slade is in his cell, which is now stocked with food. Except for Mayo, something he feels they are missing. Slade then claims that Damien is really mad at Batman and Roz. And the only way to fix it all is for Damien to kill Slade. I gave this one a 3.5. I like the psychological games that Deathstroke is playing. It makes him seem so much more powerful than somebody who can just blast and pound. Something that he points out when he is able to break out because the power dampeners that the team is using do not inhibit someone who is genetically enhanced. And as is explained by Black Mask at the beginning, Part of Slade's growth and development came from his enlistment in a secret military program that gave him enhanced intelligence, speed, reflexes, and healing ability. And none of these things are dampened by the restraints that the team put in place for its other criminals. I also love the way the other prisoners hope that he's going to help them. And Slade's I'm-looking-you-in-the-eyes-dismissal to Black Mask once he's free while Mask is still stuck in his cell. It's so perfect, I actually had to bite back a verbal laugh. I mean, it was funny, and I just had to almost like chuckle at myself for thinking so and for doing it out loud. So 3.5 out of 5 for me on Deathstroke number 42 can't wait to hear what you thought. But before we can get to that, it's time for my fifth pick. And 
Slot number five for this week goes to Furies number three. I really got a kick out of this one. Granny is doing her best to bring some out-of-the-box thinking into play in order to help her team and bring them together. She's using Dreamer to create a dream, but it keeps becoming a nightmare, to which Granny responds that the dream must continue until the source of the rot that is corrupting her team can be found. But the challenges are daunting. Aurelie will not leave because she believes her fate is sealed because her deal with hell, apocalypse, dark side, and granny goodness is sealed. When she somehow pulls herself out of her dream to stay awake, granny blames Aurelie for not allowing Willick to get a little slap and tickle, as Granny calls it, because Granny herself has endured more. But Aureli has already mentioned she doesn't understand why she is being forced to endure something that is clearly damaging her and the team. But this whole scene is not actually real. It's all an illusion to disguise Aureli helping Dreamer to escape, and then in turn they both leave together seeking out Himon and his refuge. Now this sudden departure causes the rest of the Furies to wake up from what they felt were very pleasant dreams of success and triumph and victory. Granny then summons Barda and Lashina to come with her, because clearly Aureli cannot be that far. But before they can, a boom tube arrives to bring Granny before Darkseid. Once the rest of the court has left, Darkseid confesses that he can only trust Granny with the knowledge that Scott Free has been corrupted by Hamon, and that this corruption is something Dreamer is a part of as Hamon's advance guard. Secure with this knowledge, Granny charges her Furies, and Barda and the Furies invade Hamon's refuge, where they retrieve a broken Aureli. But before they do, Barda meets Scott Free, and when she does, he challenges Barda, and when she asks his name, he reveals it only to seek hers as well, before telling her that he will soon be out of her clutches. When she promises that there is no way he can escape, he assures her that the knowledge that he has gained from Hamon allows him to escape from anything. With the deserter back amongst them, the Furies return to Granny, and there Aureli's punishment is to dance for Willick in special boots that he created for her. But when she dances, the boots burn off her legs, and they leave her crippled and dying in the arms of Barda, who's come in to check on her. On the next page at her funeral, only Barda believes that Willick is to blame. And when she is greeted by Scott Free, appearing behind her, and off-panel, he says he has an offer to help her. I'm curious to see how long it takes her to accept. If you're familiar with the history of Barda, Scott Free, Granny the Furies, Apocalypse, New Genesis, and Earth, then you know many futures and even present-day stories have been told about Barda, Scott Free, and their history as prisoners of Granny and Apocalypse. 
I feel like this is a new introduction to that story, and I'm looking forward to seeing this version of that origin and its developments. So much, though, of what I found to be the most compelling was the promise of hope and possibility, something that always seems like such a rare thing to even consider in such a hopeless place like Apocalypse. And yet, this story makes it seem fresh, new, and even possible. And by the end, when Barda meets Scott and is given the chance to consider it, that small glimmer of hope seems real enough that I actually think, despite all of her ferocity, this Barda will listen like so many have before her. And the reason she will is the promise of hope, the possibility that has somehow been sustained in such a dark and miserable place. And that those things, well, they're going to be something that I'm going to enjoy from issue to issue. I really enjoyed giving this one a 4 out of 5. And as the spinner rack slows to a stop, this episode, issue number 3, comes to a close, which leaves just a tiny bit of business to attend to. Please keep in mind that DC Comics News is now on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please, head over and subscribe to the podcast to rate and review. I recommend five stars. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube, all at DC Comics News. And as always, read more comics. I've been your host. Thanks for listening. And join me next week for the next edition of The Spinner Rack, right here on DCN Podcast.